Welcome to Being the That. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest or guests to share their experiences of being a person of color in white spaces. In season one, we talked about being black and brown in all kinds of white spaces, including science, pharmacy, a Fortune 500 company, or even in sports while golfing. But what if you were a black indigenous person of color and your white space was your home and or your family? This situation can happen in several different ways, but transracial adoption is one of the most common. 73% of all adoptions of Black, Indigenous people of color are done by white people. Our guest daughters today are able to speak to the experience of being Black and Brown in white families because they did. Our guests today are Amy Davis, Amy is the coordinator of the Center for Diversity and Inclusion and the interim Title IX Deputy Coordinator at Susquehanna University. She received her bachelor's and master's degree at Bucknell University and currently serves on many community and civic organizations, including the Youth Employment Center at the Donald Heisler Community Center. Amy is also a very visual fixture in her local Black Lives Matter movement. Noah Fenstermeister. Noah is a current graduate student at the Pennsylvania State University. He received his bachelor's degree at Susquehanna University and serves as an assistant producer of Being the Dot podcast. Robert Byers is a financial coach and registered agent with Primerica where he helps people to build financial wealth and a financial future for both their children and their children's children. Bob also works with people who are looking to increase their own physical fitness by being a personal trainer. Please welcome to the podcast, Amy, Bob, and Noah. Applause and around. Hey guys. So I thought it would be good for us to start with your gotcha story and how you came to being a member of your family. I guess I can go first. Yes, go ahead and go, Bob. Sorry. Oh, no, you're good. Um, so so my story, I was born in in Philadelphia. Um, you know, my dad, you know, he was was into drugs. My mom was into drugs as well. Um, so I was pulled out of that situation, um, you know, from the hospital. And, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, different things that went along with that. You know, uh, my, my birth mom being like, you know, why do I have to have this kid? You know, why do I have him? Things like that. Well, then I was taken to one of the adopt or the, the foster care slash adoption centers. Um, and then my mom, she actually came. Uh, they were in the foster slash adopt um, system. And she came down, you know, they said the first thing, like bonding with her, like they said, we had such a connection that like I would have died if I wouldn't have like been adopted by her so being adopted into that into that space then um no i have six sisters one brother you know my youngest sister she's black and the rest are white so being how my my basic adoption story is you know they basically saved me from from the normal you know having to run drugs as my dad would have wanted or you know different things like that so so that's normally that's how my story started um and, you know, from then on, it was just, you know, I was raised up here in central PA and mm-hmm. uh, went from there. Great. That's that's helpful. Thank you so much, Bob. Amy, would you like to go next? Absolutely. So I was born in Columbia, South America, in Bogota, the capital. Um, and I was um, placed into an orphanage, Fana, um, which is 
translated, it basically means the foundation for um, the adoption of abandoned children. And I, um, my parents were from Pennsylvania and they were having trouble um, conceiving and but knew they wanted to have children. And so it's interesting how um, networks of adoption can happen, especially international adoptions. Um, there were some other folks who were kind of the first to do it here. And then as more um, people within that network, you know, different um, families were looking to adopt, um, they all connected and, and went through the same orphanage. So I grew up in, in central PA with um, well over 20 children from my orphanage in Columbia. So um, my parents adopted me um, when I was still, you know, an infant, um, came to Columbia to, to get me um, and me back to Lewisburg, actually, Lewis Central PA. And your family structure, Bobby talked about the being six siblings and one other black person. What about yours? Yes, so um, I have my parents who are both white and then um, I was the first child that they adopted from the orphanage in Columbia. Um, but after me, they adopted two sons, two more children from the same orphanage. Um, we were not biologically um, siblings, but um, we were from the same orphanage. So I grew up with two younger brothers, also Colombian, also adopted. Uh-huh. Thank you for that. Noah? I'll give you the shortened version of this story. I was adopted really young to the point where my adoptive parents are their mom and dad, right? They're all I've ever known. And I was adopted out of Philadelphia and they took me back to their adopted home here in Sunbury, PA, where I've been all my life, right? And in doing so, I always wondered about them. And for 20 years, I thought the day will come where I'll get to meet them. And it's a recent story here, as recent as last week, I have tracked down all members of the biological family. So in my family, I am the oldest of three. In the biological family, I am the youngest of five. Wow. So in total, a lot of family got a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. At first, it's not a success story, though. It wasn't a warm welcome. It was uncomfortable. They didn't want to claim me or admit that I ever happened. It was an unfortunate so circumstance. Your, your biological family? Yes, biological family. Mm-hmm. I've reached so hold that, hold that for me, because we're going to talk a little bit about the bios, if you will. Um, but let's let's kind of hang out with the adoptive family. Mm-hmm. So you were one of three, you said. One of As three, well? yes. And then were your other siblings um, black or brown, or were they white? Yes, the middle child is one of three of us. We're all four years apart. Jonah was also adopted by another family. Okay, all right. Jonah in your family, or Jonah in in your family that you grew up in. Yes, Jonah and the adopted family. It's Noah, Jonah, and Luke. Okay. Uh, myself and Jonah were a both adopted. A little tribe there. Uh-huh. And then Luke <laughs> is their biological son. I understand. I got you. I got you. Okay. Very good. So, so as you think about growing up, and well, I think what's interesting is that each, all three of you kind of grew up in rural Pennsylvania in central Pennsylvania, right? And so that's a particular set of experiences versus being adopted by the same family and growing up in Philadelphia, right? Um, because not just your family was white, but probably in a lot of situations, everybody was white, mostly, right? And so part of what I'm wondering is how was race handled in your family unit? How was it talked about? Was it talked about? Um, But uh, how was it handled? Um, Okay, so so great question. Um, They always, a lot of times, like with my family, like they didn't really admit I was black. Um, It was more like, well, you're one of us. But like, mm-hmm. and like I always knew I was like, I wasn't white, but it didn't really register until I got into high school age. Um, that's where mm-hmm. a lot of it started mm-hmm. to stand out. But my parents never pointed out you're different than us or yeah, you're black. So like, you're not really our son. Like that never came up. They were always like, you're our son and mm-hmm. that's who you are. Like we, mm-hmm. we love you as, as one of our own. So 
my sister, my youngest sister is also black and adopted. And um, so, you know, it was definitely different because like we knew we were different, but we ne- it was never talked about really. We were always just part mm-hmm. of the family. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good. What about you, Amy? Yeah, so um, I guess I should give a caveat too um, before I go into some of the explanation, which is that, you know, I was born in the 80s. And so, um, you know, the resources I think that are around today just weren't as prevalent back then. Um, You know, now you can get onto Facebook and I'm a member of a lot of transracial adoptee um, groups and, and there are so many resources and um, the conversation is so much more prominent now about um, just all things race relations, but more specifically with um, when we think of developmental theory and and just we have a lot more at our fingertips now. So um, I think similar to Bob, um, I think that the parents, especially white parents at the time, um, I think that the seeming best practice was to say, you're one of us, right? Um, to, and, and in some ways gloss over the conversation, um, which can be very detrimental to the development of brown and black children. Um, but I, I would say a big caveat because I don't think that there's malicious intent behind it. Um, mm-hmm. I, think was, I think the idea was this is how we, we foster acceptance, this is how we foster family. Um, but in reality, it was very confusing. So, um, and we know from racial developmental theories that um, for black and brown children, we encounter our otherness um, typically around preschool, mm-hmm. um, kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my experience. And I came home one of my first days of kindergarten and my mom found me in the mirror, like touching my nose. Um, and I must have heard this word there because I asked her if I was Negro. Um, and I don't think that was a word that I'd heard before that. Um, and I think the response, I believe what she said was, well, whatever you are, we love you. And, you know, again, this is like the best intended mom response, right? Like, I don't want to negate what she's saying. I want to make sure she feels accepted. Um, but it just was sort of the platform for a lot of um, racial and identity confusion that would follow um, okay. later. And so um, the conversation I think we understand now a lot of the groups, people are considering moving um, families who have adopted brown and black children and brought them to a predominantly white area like in central PA. Um, The conversation nowadays is, you know, the right thing to do would be to move to where they can have more mirrors and um, leaders and people in positions of authority that look like them. Um, That wasn't even really, (laughs) I think, a conversation or a thought. When, when I was a child, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of mirrors um, around me, you know, just other adults that were black and brown. And, and so the conversation really has only existed um, in adulthood. And I've often been leading the conversation. With Thanks, Amy. What about you, Noah? I would say in relation to what Amy said, because I was adopted you know, later in life, there were a lot more resources when I was first adopted and my family was very accepting. At best, they were talking about the differences in racial identity and what I might be facing, that they loved me for who I was, but that others might not be prepared for that. And I was very young. At worst, again, this is at worst, extended family members, more of a color blindness, right? The very, we don't see color at all, which as you said, caveat, they don't mean any in, ill intent by that, but it erases the reality that there will be those that do see color and right. how to deal with that. And then I got more into my teenage years when it became the dating scene. And that's really where it was never, mm-hmm. I could never turn away from my color. Because it was always brought up no matter what choices I made. And that's when I really discovered, okay, it is different out here. Mm-hmm. Amy, I saw you nodding when um, Noah mentioned dating. And I was wondering uh, what that was. Oh, yeah. I think that that is um, – I hadn't really – I've thought about this so much. But, no, I haven't really thought exactly what you just said. And it's so true. When dating comes up, suddenly, um, you know, you're confronted – with not just your own thoughts and feelings about identity, but others and parents and, and um, yeah. And I remember a lot of conversations about my racial choices in dating <laughs> when I 
um, entered my teenage years. And um, it was very confusing at the time. And um, it also brings up a conversation I had with my dad years later where we were kind of talking about identity and maybe slightly arguing. And, and I looked at him and I said, well, I'm not white. Um, so what am I to you? And he said, you're just Amy. Again, all of the good intention, but um, a lot of erasure, a lot of confusion. Um, yeah. Well, I'm struck by the difference between your experience and Noah's experience, Noah's experience. Um, and, and maybe you were adopted, I'm assuming, in the 90s, Noah? Yeah, 1998. Right. And so almost, and you said in the 80s, Amy, so almost a 15 to 20 year difference and a very different experience. Mm-hmm. Bob, did you want to chime in here at all? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they were talking about the dating scene. And um, one of the big things that came up was, well, you should only date black girls because you're black. Like, and I heard that a lot in high school because there was a certain high school I went to where it was the majority of high schoolers were, it was like a high school and a college, like, it's like a private school. So like, it's like, I remember this distinctly. One person was like, well, you should date that girl. She, cause she's the only black girl here and you two would go well together. And like, I remember that. And you know, there was other circumstances that came up, but a lot of times it's like, and I was like, well, I'm going to find every white girl I can date. And I'm going to wait to wait, date the white girls because you say I can't. Mm-hmm. You could tell like, there was a lot of racialness that went on with the statement he said, but he heard it from his parents, but I knew his parents as well. So then that threw me into a loop because I was like, where did he hear that? And I was like, it's from his parents. And so like, that was a very racial thing. And there was a lot more racial things that were said along the dating line. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's why I was like, sort of, you know, chiming in here because I'm like, you know, I felt that full force, you know, right in my face and it was not hidden, you know. So even though they said, oh, it doesn't exist, technically it exists. So wh- what's your sense of what the impact was of of how your parents chose to kind of manage your racial identity? Uh, like you're just my son and that's it. Um, or you're just you're just my daughter, or you're, or you're just Amy. Like, what what's your sense of how that impacted you? <laughs> One thing that my mother said when I was starting to get into my teen years, right, and the dating scene was starting to come up now, is she kind of saw it before me, right? She's always been very cognizant of we're in central central PA, and this might be an issue at some point, right? And she said that we love you for who you are, right? Starts off with that point, and then explained that some people will love you just for that or will hate you just for that skin color, that one detail. You are so much more than just that. It's an important part of your identity, but take all of that into account and find those that see you for you. Don't get bogged down by that. And I love the way that she put that because we're not getting too many details here. That allowed me to navigate the harder aspects, which was dating and the work life without getting bogged down, being aware of these differences, right? Um, like it felt like when you make a dating decision or a work decision, am I deciding for the culture, right? Is it a political statement or a cultural statement? And trying to bring that back to you are, it's your personal decision. You are an individual and decide for you, not for any other factor. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Bobby or Amy, you want to talk a little bit about how you feel like the, the um, I don't see color or you're just my child impacted you both? Yeah, hearing Noah talk about some of that preparation, I think that that is really key. And again, that's more suggested or, or strongly encouraged um, in a lot of the, the Facebook pages I, I'm a part of. And I think one thing I wasn't totally prepared for um, and didn't know how to handle was um, also as a Latina, like fetishization, um, which I actually experienced a lot as a very, very young child. Um, I can remember hearing the word exotic for the first time when I was like three or four years old. And I was often in all white spaces, often in all white party spaces too, like not wild parties, but like, you know, um, receptions and galas and things like that. And we dressed up and we were often black haired, uh, 
sort of olive tone children around, you know, a lot of blonde children and things. So we were often, our parents was, my brothers and I were often commented um, on exotic or, or a lot of questions or comments about our appearance. And so that carried on into dating for sure. Um, and I was not at all prepared for what it means to be fetishized. Um, I have five children of my own. They are um, biracial. And I've talked to my oldest daughter a lot about this and my son too, my oldest son. Um, and I think especially growing up in a predominantly white space like Central PA, um, you know, for my daughter as a young, brown, beautiful woman and my son as a strong, handsome, young black man, like it's things that um, are really important for them to know about. And, and so the impact for me was just a lack of preparation. I didn't really know what I was facing or dealing with. And so I didn't always respond appropriately or, or know what to even do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. What's not respond appropriately. I'm coming to you, Bobby, in a minute, but what's not. Respond- yeah. Can you give us a, an example, Amy? I just didn't even know what was happening. I didn't know, um, you know, to me, oh, if someone likes you, then, you know, they must not be racist or they must not, you know, see you. And it can be the opposite. Like they're, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of um, the best words to use here. Um, but I know for myself and a lot of my non-white friends who have been in relationships with um, white people, there can still be a lot of racism in those relationships. Um, and, and when you're fetishized like that in and of itself can be a form of racism. And so it can just end up being very confusing. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I clearly haven't thought about this enough to have my words together. No, your words are perfect. No, no, it's good. It's really good. What about you, Bobby? Um, I would say kind of along the lines of what Amy just said, um, you know, like I always thought, you know, hey, people like me, so they must like like me for me. Uh But like as time went on, you would find out why they really liked you. And it wasn't for the reasons you thought. Like, oh, he's black, he's strong, he's this, he's that. And like, I always thought those were compliments, but it's actually more of a fetishization, however the word is. Um, More of a fetish. (laughs) Say the word fetish, fetishization. Is that it? Is that the word? You got it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You got it. But it was more along those lines where like, you know, it was almost like a prize to have, like, especially in the white circles, because, like, the females thought it was cool to have a black man. But, like, yeah, because it's all about, oh, look what I have. Look what I was able to obtain. And, like, so there was ones who were very outright, like that statement about you just should date black girls because you're black. But then there was the other side of it that I didn't understand because I was not prepared for it. But my parents, they didn't mean bad when they didn't prepare. I don't think they meant badly. They just didn't know. They tried to shield me from it. And I never told them really, you know, what was going on too much because like they're my parents and they love me. So like in a way I was like, well, I don't want to tell them this is going on because I know how angry they're going to be. I'll just deal with it on my own. But like, I don't, I don't feel like they ever meant me harm, but it kind of harmed me at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I I think, Bobby, what you just shared is really interesting. Um, In an interview that I've also done with Black mothers about raising Black children, Black and Brown children, um, they talk about, they talk very poignantly about learning all of the stuff that happened to their kids. Now that their kids are adults, these racialized experiences that they had, that the kids just didn't tell them. Um, and they didn't tell them because, well, in one case, they didn't want the mother to go up to the school and, you know, get people to business. And so it was like, forget it, <laughs> deal with it, um, until it got so bad that they needed a little bit of help. Um, and so I, I think what, what, what the three of you have really shared here is really congruent with other people, um, that I have had an opportunity to, to interview about being the dot, um, in white spaces that there's this notion of um, I'm having this racialized experience and I'm trying to make meaning of it all at the same time. Yep. So the racial identity development theory talks about um, 
kind of in the same way that you go from um, crawling to the walker to walking to being a new walker and you're unstable like a mummy to actually being proficient in walking. That the same thing is true as it relates to the way that we see ourselves as a racial being. And it kind of goes where you don't really see it and you think that um, white is maybe better than um, being a person of color and then um, things happen and and you start to question and then you go from questioning to being in this kind of very immersed stage of like, you. The, these are the people who put the L in Latina or the B in black, you know, dashiki wearing. And maybe you're not literally doing that, but that's kind of the attitude. And they see most things through the lens of their racial identity. Um, and then um, moving through to um, being more um, internalized, being able to see the oppression of other people, um, maybe um, 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 being able to fight for the oppression of other people, knowing and understanding that, yes, that you are having a racialized experience, but it may be everything is not seen from that lens, the most things. And so my guess is that each of you have gone through some some derivative of that or all of it. I mean, I know that I described it very kind of step one, step two, step three, step four, but it really is more like this and that, you know, kind of zigzagged and circular in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering when you think about when you went through that, those processes, what was it like to be in your family? And um, do you see yourself in them at all? Do you see yourself in them at all? Let's start there as I described them. Yes. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, like, I think when when I was younger, like, I didn't see like, I didn't see who I was till I entered like middle school slash high school, and then I realized I was different, and I was like, well, why why am I the only black person like here? Like, where is everybody else? Like, and I was like, well, I, if I was like them, I wouldn't have like people wouldn't say what they say. Mm-hmm. But as I've grown and as I've like, now I live in Sunbury. So there's a lot more diversity than like I grew up in Middleburg. So there's a lot more diversity in Sunbury than there is Middleburg. So like, then I started to see like different role models, like my pastor and different people like that, who who are black men and they're proud of it. And like, I started to see it before, but just having that reinforced, like I see these proud black men who carry themselves in a way that we should. And like in a way that I can be be proud of and live up to. Now I'm coming on the other side of it where I have children and teaching my children, hey, you know, taking out those steps and showing them who they are young and having them be proud of who they are growing all the way into that. <laughs> Great. Thank you. What about you, Noah? So the question is, do I see myself in my family? Do you see yourself in those stages that I laid out? Got it. I would say that the the biggest comment I'd have on this question is that there's a difference between opening your eyes and seeing with them. It sounds very metaphysical, but if I can explain here, uh, noticing the issue, noticing disparity is one thing, but then realizing what that symbolizes. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, oh, there's no Black people here. I can see that, but then to be aware of why that might be. And what led to this and what that means for me being the only one here. Does that mean, oh, they expect me to speak for everybody who looks like me being Mm -hmm. the only one here. And so it's realizing, oh, there's a lot of weight to just being in the area. And a lot of what you do as a personal decision might be seen as a a political or cultural action, right? And so it's unfortunately, it shouldn't be that way. But at least to me, it appears like you then become the symbol for everyone like you. And so everything you do is weighted with that sort of intention. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Noah. Amy? Yeah, I'm going to try to summarize this as best I can. Um, you know, being that I, I did most of my studies, my bachelor's and my master's in education and thought a lot about identity development models. This is something I've like probably written like 50 page papers on that. Obviously you all don't want to hear all of that, but, but I think, (laughs) I think the issue is compounded for, um, for folks around here um, with, with just sort of knowing a little bit about this area and knowing a little bit of the historical context too. So um, when I was, I was born in 87 and when I was going through um, kindergarten, um, tracking practices were still legal in school settings 
And so um, when they were going to place us in first grade, they literally had two first grades. One was called first grade and the other one was called remedial first grade. Um, and, you know, it still happens. Um, tracking still happens, but it's just not as blatant because it's not legal to do that. Um, and so they split us and they split us 100% down racial and socioeconomic lines. Um, I mean, 100%. So um, I was going to be attending the remedial first grade. Um, now, my mom had um, the privilege to be able to pull me out and put me in a private school, um, which definitely changed my trajectory for sure. Um, but I think I be, that was those are the subtle ways that we begin to associate race with with negative identity. Um, right. Like, why is it that all of the brown and black kids and, and the poor white kids are all going to this class? We must be bad, if that makes sense. Um, and uh -huh. so. And so it wasn't until middle school when I really entered into what like Cross and Helms and folks would call the immersion stage where I was really surrounding myself entirely with, with other brown and black students. Um, and that was when I began to, to have a very pro-black, pro-brown stance in, in my life. And, and it is just what it says, immersion. I was totally immersed in that. Um, the, the difficult thing, if you take then the history of Central PA, particularly in then education and things, is that... Um, we were often the kids who might like get in trouble or have more detentions or, um, you know, maybe be on the bad side of a lot of the teachers and things like that. And so uh, I remember one time a teacher um, accusing a lot of us of being in a gang and, and I, and we had to go get like drug tested. And of course, none of us were doing drugs. It was just bizarre. Um, and so you know, there, there are lots of things that came along with that. And it wasn't then until later when I went to a private school and I was suddenly around very high achieving brown and black students that I realized, like, it kind of debunked that, um, what you were talking about, Stacey, that, that this idea that, okay, white is good, maybe otherness isn't, um, because I realized, wow, the, the highest achieving students at this school are, are not white. And they're the presidents of all the clubs and they're, they're leaders and, and they're the ones not going crazy partying on the weekends. And so it, it brought the question of the why that Noah was talking about. Why is it like that then back home? Um, which is why I've dedicated so much of my adult life to um, education and thinking about um, the communities that we have in this area, the communities of color. That's helpful. So, so we sometimes the racism um, thing, uh, peace situation um, can infiltrate our lives in ways that we don't have control over, right? And so, um, or take over the national narrative. And so, you know, typically racism is out there, but then maybe like the summer when... Um, we had the George Floyd thing and then the subsequent civil unrest and the racial reckoning um, that the country is currently trying to deal with. Now it's inside the house. Like it's, it's almost impossible to ignore, if you will. And I'm wondering what it has been like in your white families in the middle of this racial reckoning that is happening all around us. Why don't you start, Amy? Um, I, you know, again, I was adopted in the 80s, so my parents have come a long way with just what's available to them and their understanding. So, you know, I will give them this that I feel, um, while we definitely might not still be 100% on the same page, so to say, and, you know, their lived experiences aren't mine or, or um, those of, of other Black and Brown people um, or Black and Indigenous people of color in general, um, I can say that um, I think they're so much more aware than when I was a kid. And so our conversations, um, I hate this term, but for the ease of the conversation, I'll say they're much more woke um, and they, they kind of see what's going on and they, and they can point to um, a lot of the inequities or um, just a lot of the racial injustice that's happening in our country. So, so this okay. time hasn't been as bad as I think if this would have happened, you know, 10 years ago or so, um, and still not fully on the same page or our commitment even to, to what's going on might look different. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. did come and stand. My parents came and stood next to me at a at a candlelight vigil uh, along Market Street in Lewisburg for George Floyd. And, you know, we're right there with me and my kids. And it was not some big thing. We were lined by ourselves. So there were cars passing. And so um, I appreciated that a lot. I think that they've come a long way. And so um, to answer your questions, it's been uh, good to see that. I think there's a lot nice. more to to understand and a lot further to go. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of part of what leads me to ask the question is that in my work with folks, what I have come to know is that this was a could was a personal wrecking for some people, reckoning for some people, and that it has it has led to complications in their families and even in their relationships, um, that kind of thing. And so uh, that that's part of what I uh, was wondering that it has that been a part of your story. What about you, Bobby? Um, I think my parents, like, they still don't talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I think they, they're just like, you're just Bobby to us. Like, you're our son. But, mm-hmm. and so, like, I don't, I don't hold, hold any, like, ill will toward my parents or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, like, I don't think they quite, like, can wrap their head around everything yet. Like, I don't think they're quite there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we'll talk about it, but, you know, and they always are like, yeah, you know, we agree, but I don't think it truly like, I don't think they have the grasp on it yet, but they've always just looked at me as their son. So it's a little bit of an interesting topic still Mm -hmm. in life Um, because, you know, like they knew that my mom was black. They knew all those things. and yet, like, we've never, like, looked for my family. Like, I, you know, I'm doing that as well. But, like, my mom and dad currently, or, like, my adopted mom and dad, they've never really initiated that process simply because I'm their son. And mm-hmm. that's pretty much how it is. Mm-hmm. I understand. I'm glad you said that, Bob. Um, I guess the two things that I would talk about are the transracial adoption paradox where you were, we're, we're kind of caught i see you're not in the year about this you we're caught between uh-huh. the majority culture or the dominant culture and the minority culture and when this happened right we've heard about code switching so a lot of folks up to this point have been switching between maybe different mm-hmm. dialects and personalized kind of deal with it and this summer it broke down all those barriers it became a national conversation we're all in the same room nationwide and i think a lot of complications came because oh i thought that was you but you were holding back this is what you really feel and for those white family members that are just like ah well maybe he's just this sure he's black but he's one of us now they're realizing oh he and they the same and they're realizing that and i'm very blessed and privileged to have a family that was so accepting of that so when this conversation happened they're right there with you like oh my god this is so thank God this is happening right now. We're having this conversation. So I was very blessed to be in the family. I would even say my mom is even more direct about this than I am. I don't want to out or anything, but she's on social media, the kind of lady picking fights because someone said a racist term or they're calling something out. Like that's a that's a fake fact. You can't be saying that. So that's the family that has raised me. And so I think because of that, this summer brought us closer together. Mm-hmm. Um, are there examples where um, that I, I know your parents were accepting, but um, in extended family, in your extended family network, where it was a little bit more complicated. This for me? All of you. You can start, Noah. All right. Yeah. When I say family, I mean my direct family, like, you know, brothers, mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, uncles, and aunts. That's me, but like the family, the core group there very accepting and there's nobody that's been out and out like he's not one of us but it's more of a they take that color blindness approach to it and that's the extended out there family members but ones that have only seen me once or twice in the life and so to them it's more of a why are you making a big deal about this it's just your skin color right you're black i'm white i don't know why you're complaining so much and so yeah <laughs> that reaction so dealing with those limited interactions it is sometimes difficult to get the point across that we're in the same family, yes, but that one detail here is very, it gets a different reaction in the real world. Mm-hmm. And not acknowledging it does not erase the problem. 
What about you, Bob? No, you echoed everything I have to say, kind of. Um, you know, because like, it's like, well, why is it such a big deal? Like, you just, you're part of us. So like, you know, why is it a big deal? And why do we have to talk about this? This is not, a, this does not apply to us because we're family. No, that, that still applies because like, like it's an issue that's going on. And so it's like, oh, well, you'll be fine. Just like, you know, just stay safe and like, you'll be okay. But yeah, it's like, why is this an issue? But it's a big deal, especially maybe not like with my family, but everybody else who's outside who doesn't view it the way my family does, because they can't say you're family. They say, well, he's different. So we have a problem with him. <laughs> my family's like, well, you shouldn't talk about it. I'm like, well, what about those people who don't want to admit? Like, because we're all like, we're all human beings. But there's people who don't agree with that, that say we're less than them. So, you know, it's still not something my family likes to talk about too much because they're like, well, it's not a big deal. But it's no big deal. Gotcha. Amy? Thank you, Bob. Yeah, this is a complicated one. Um, I think certainly when my parents announced that they were going to be um, adopting internationally, um, I know that some of the older family members, or at least one that I know of, did not have a positive response to that. Um, it was most, you know, the story is that, oh, but once everybody saw you as a baby, you know, everyone just was so happy and in love with, you know, it's that exceptional, that, um, it borders on being, um, I don't know, what's the word when, when you accept that one person of color, why can't I think of it right now? I don't know, but that, that person is different than the others. Yeah. Is what I'm thinking. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and so. There was certainly, there was a lot of colorblindness, as, as one pointed to, but I think also um, what I couldn't quite pinpoint as a child, but was very present, was um, some implicit bias. Um, you know, there would be situations where I felt like I could see whether it was cousins or friends, um, children, um, getting the benefit of the doubt in situations, and I always felt like um, there were moments where I was assumed to be guilty or assumed to be wrong. Um, and I think now I understand that to be otherness and to be bias, um, plus bias in particular, but it just made me feel like wrong and bad a lot as a child. Okay. Okay. As, as transracial adoptees, we, we often hold like this dichotomy way of existing, um, you know, where we have to exist in majority culture, but we also um, exist in and move through minority culture and we know what it is to be part of our family, but to also feel a little bit outside of it. And I think to point to a lot of the things that Bobby's been saying um, about our families, our parents' um, unwillingness to maybe, I'd say it's almost more of an inability to understand that. You, know, you don't know what you mm. know. And if they have this one way of experiencing the world, um, whereas we can hold loving our family, but wanting to know where we came from, because we are mm -hmm. always existing in this sort of dichotomous existence. I think sure. that's not the same for our parents. They can't feel that paradigm as well. They can't feel those two things at the same time, um, the way that we can, just so innately, because we're always moving through two worlds at the same time, um, externally. Um, and it's the same thing with, well, why do we have to talk about this? Everything's okay. You know, you've ne you know, you haven't experienced, you know, these huge racial injustices, whereas we probably have experienced being profiled, fetishized, or all of these things. Um, but again, we can hold those dichotomous existences at the same time, whereas our parents just can't, our, families, our white family sure. can't. And so that's how I've been able well, to find grace. And grace is good. Grace is very, and, 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 and I think when I came to the table around this, um, you know, I, I felt um, sensitive of not wanting to attack your families. Right. And um, particularly, um, I don't have a relationship with Noah and Bobby, your families that I do with Amy's, right? Um, and so um, I just felt sensitive around that. And I felt like it was important to tell your story. Um, yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that 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 was, was present for me as I thought about um, our time together. Um, and, and it's clear to me that each of you are trying to hold both as well, that, 
these these people loved me and raised me. And there are things that are complex about that relationship. And maybe, I guess that's the case for everybody, right? Yeah. Um, at, at some level, but that the complexities as it relates to um, the three of you are connected to um, identity and race and ethnicity. So do you, even of the three of you watch This Is Us? Yes. Yes, good. So where we are at the time that this is being taped, listeners, is if you watch the show that Randall um, has just found out. So he's a transracial adoptee. Um, He was um, adopted from the hospital um, by his parents and raised with two other siblings who were uh, part of a triplet crew and one of the babies died. Okay. Um, So Randall is at the point of uh, finding his birth mother. What do you guys think about kind of Randall and his journey and even about bio families as it relates to being a transracial adoptee? No, go for it. So when we're talking about bio families, I think there's not an awkwardness, but there should be a gentleness, a sensitivity, that's where a sensitivity towards that subject matter, because we don't know the origin story, for lack of a better word, of a lot of transracial adoptees. And so some of them could be these bio families just didn't have the financial means of support, or they just couldn't for some reason keep the child and they wanted to have a good home. And there are others that are unfortunately not as happy of an origin story as that. And so being aware of those reasons might be, uh, you might be bringing up something that might be sensitive to someone who's dealing with that right now. And especially because when they're young, you, they typically don't have the the means or resources to go after these biological families. So when they get to about my age, right, 18 onward in the 20s, maybe early 30s, they can find these people and they may get a different part of the story or get a fuller picture of how and why they were adopted. And as in my case, it's not always this uh, – picture perfect thing that you imagined it to be mm. and you have to be prepared for it could be a positive or negative experience now, so it has been as picture perfect as you thought it would be not this picture perfect no mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's good there's good members right i just met a brother of mine we just met up for dinner the other week so that was an incredible thing to meet this person wow, this is really fresh uh-huh <laughs> yeah uh-huh. Very, very fresh but it's the elements where you might not get all the answers you seek. If you think that it's going to be this final closure and that's it, I met them. It's amazing. I would just say as advice, don't go in with that impression. Walk in kind of tiptoeing. You're not sure what it might happen. It's mm. not entirely negative, but I've learned from that experience. And I'm trying to use that in the book that I'm writing to help other students go through this with some mentor. That's good. That's good. What about you, Bobby and Amy? Go ahead, Amy. Go ahead. Yeah. This is so complicated for for different folks because um, all the things no pointed to. Um, Particularly in the 80s, um, a lot of the international adoption practices were a lot more shady than folks would ever probably like to know or like to confront. Um, In fact, I think most of the white parents um, that I know would be appalled if they knew some of the articles I've read um, about Colombian adoptions at the time um, that even implicate the very orphanage I came from. Um, and so it, it become you know, there's, there's a whole history. There's a new um, series on, I, I don't even remember if it's Hulu or Netflix, about a doctor who was doing some very shady backroom adoptions um, in the 60s and 70s and um, even later than that. And so I think number one, when we think about social inequities, when we think about um, just structural racism and barriers um, and things like that, the conversation is already really complex. You know, why was this the only option? And even for some folks who who it's like this super happy story, like, oh, like I just, um, I was in this bad financial situation. Oh, we can take care of your baby. It's just super complicated, period. Um, but then... I think for me being that it's a whole continent away, my, my biological family. And there's a, you know, I knew from the time I was little that I I had curiosity there. It's why I dedicated from the time I was in second grade on myself to learning Spanish and, and why I can speak Spanish today is this idea that someday I would look for my family. Um, 
I think things like Ancestry DNA and 23andMe have helped a lot of folks. Um, and again, I think as adoptees, we can hold the two things at the same time, the love and belongingness that we have for our white families and this um, often very deep innate desire to know where we come from. And it's different for everyone. Um, and I know that I, one of my best friends growing up wanted nothing. She didn't want to know anything. She was from the same orphanage and she didn't want to know. Um, but it's always been there for me. And they're all, people have often tried to make me feel guilty about that. You know, why isn't this enough? Why isn't this family enough? Why isn't your family enough? Um, so there's just a lot of complexities sure. around looking for a biological family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Amy. Bob, did you want to chime in here at all? Or uh, not so much? Yeah, yeah, kind of like uh, like Noah was saying, like, you know, in the process of looking for them, like, you know, I've kept in my mind, like, don't be prepared for a happy, like, welcome necessarily. Like, because it could be totally different than you think. And like, you know, looking forward to, to finding out, you know, different things and all that. Like, it's also, you have to approach that cautiously and then if it turns out well, then it's a good thing. But you have to be ready for in case it doesn't. And, you know, sort of what Amy was saying, like the complexity of of finding them sometimes. Because when I was adopted, like I was a I was a sealed adoption. Mm. So like, you know, that's a lot more complicated than an open adoption more. Mm. Um, you know, with my mom and dad, you know, it was more of a danger thing for them if they would have known where I was. It would have been more dangerous for me. Because, you know, my dad was like, well, I want him to, I can't wait till he's old enough so he can run the streets for me and run my drugs for me. Well, they had connections in Philly. So they told my parents, don't ever let them know where he is until he's 18. So like, you know, there's different complexities that come with it. But, um, you know, I just find it very, you know, insightful and helpful what Noah and Amy both said, you know, for people to be like, hey, you know, like, you have to be prepared for you know, whatever may come your way in the process of looking for them. But don't let that discourage you from looking for them at the same time. Well, and I, I think that it's natural to want to know. 100%. Right? Yeah. And and I mean, and, and not wanting to know is fine. Um, and I just kind of want to normalize this notion of wanting to know. Absolutely. That's important. That's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as you think about, I ask this question to everyone. Um want the one thing. So as you think about yourself as a person of color in a white family, what's the one piece of advice that you would give white people who find themselves in a similar situation about making their family more inclusive, more, um, I don't like the word tolerant. I'll just go with accusive, inclusive. I think number one, if you are a white person or a couple or family looking to adopt transracially, um, it is imperative that you do the work ahead of time. There are so many resources at your fingertips now um, that it's almost like there's there's no excuse to not be very well read and very, it really put a lot of thought. Um, Amy, would you talk about some of a couple of Facebook groups that you're in? Yeah, one's just literally called Transracial Adoptees, and um, and, you know, if you're accepted into that group, um, there are links to, I've, I, I didn't join them because they don't apply to me, but to white um, prospective white adoptive parents, folks who are already white adoptive parents. And there are reading lists and resources and child psychologists of color and um, all kinds of resources for folks to use on um, considerations and hair considerations and language considerations and family connection considerations so much. So, so, so much. Um, there's a lot of white fragility in that page. Um, I will say that. Like, you know, and then there are also some really amazing um, white adoptive parents that give me so much hope because they're just really willing to confront racism and, and their own biases and um, just a lot of the structural issues. So I would say that that is imperative. And if you are, whether you have children that are 40 or two and you're already in that situation, you, like education is so important, no matter what stage you're in. Like if you didn't do it beforehand, um, then I, I think you should do it now. It will, I think, enrich the relationship you have with your transracial adopted children. Um, 
because you'll be able to understand so much more if you start to do the work to fully understand um, their experiences and, or not fully, you can never fully, but that just to better understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so seek out yeah. the resources and remember how important mirrors are. Um, there's. What do you mean when you say mirrors, Amy? Um, for your children to see um, positive reflections of themselves in adults in positions of authority and friendships you know, I know some families who travel an hour just to make sure that their children have play dates with other children of color. Um, but adults are important, too. Like you should, as an adult, have black and brown adult friends, too, who come over for dinner and spend time in your home. Like that sends such important messaging to your children. Um, they shouldn't just be the one exception, the only brown person or people that you have in your life. Like it's so important that if you have to travel to go to a, a black pediatrician or, or a Latinx pediatrician, all of those things are more important than you can ever realize. Nice. Noah, you want to go? My piece of advice would be, you may be a first-hand family member, but you're always going to have that second-hand experience. And mm. as long as you go in with that knowledge that y- this is your child – like uh, if, you, if you were a single dad raising a daughter, you would want to get a lot more feminine perspectives to help adequately raise that daughter. Or if you had a child who maybe could not walk, you would understand that I can do a lot of things to help this child, his life be so much better. But I will not have that firsthand experience of, well, I didn't think about that because it doesn't apply to me. And it's not that you're being rude or inconsiderate, but you have to take the conscious decision to think about this one identity piece. But if you don't, it doesn't affect you. But to that person, this transversely adopted child into your family, that is their existence. They can't not think about that because with everything they do, whether it be dating or the work life or their personal life, it will always affect them. Don't maximize it and make it that singular point of identity as in to kind of go so far in the direction you ostracize them. You always tell them they're different but don't minimize it and make them feel like it's not a part of who they are. Because as we pointed out beforehand, it is. And even if you don't see it that way, the world does. So as Amy pointed out, being adequately prepared, finding other folks who will understand that cultural experience and can relate that to your child. That way they have that similar upbringing. They are allowed to deal with their culture and it basically solves the transracial paradox, right? Because if they have that different culture, they don't have to choose in that regard because they have access to all these different resources that allow them to form as they're growing up, which is a great time to do it. As they're growing up, they form their own singular identity based on all the different resources for culture around them. So when they get to my age, hopefully they're saying when this when these issues happen, they have conversations there, they're willing and able to walk through it because they've dealt with the emotions, they have the background knowledge, and they don't feel like they're an imposter in either circle. That would be my advice. That's beautiful. Well, that quote, um, just because you are have a first you're a first hand relative doesn't mean you have the first hand experience. Um, I'm sure that that's gonna make the social media <laughs> yeah Bobby um yeah I guess my thoughts just revolve around kind of what Amy said you know as far as like find those resources there are so much out there um a lot of times you know people are like well it's just overwhelming so I don't want to like I don't want to go there or I I want my kid to feel like they're mine so if I expose like there's color, the skin, you know, then I sound racial. No, you don't. If you, if you put them in front of those, as Amy says, mirrors, um, you know, and have different people they can, you know, reflect themselves in or like, you know, a good role model, someone like that, you know, because I'm black, but if I would have a white child, then I would make sure that they were in front of good white role models because then they wouldn't have to feel like, well, dad doesn't get it. Because if you're willing to put yourself, you know, not be like, well, I'm the only one that you can like look up to. Yeah, you're their parents, so they should look up to you. But if you also have ones from the other side who they're like, then they'll be like down the road, they'll be like, dad cared because he was willing to to put me in front of a good role model. And, you know, the two of them work together and help me turn my life into something that, you know, that I'm proud of or whatever it would be, you know. So just don't be afraid to to look into those resources 
and then, you know, educate yourself and take, take from those resources and better your kid's life. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much to Amy and Bobby and Noah for um, your candor and honesty and sharing your experiences. I am confident that our listeners will learn a lot from what you have to say. And really, um, there probably will be some whose experience resonates with yours. Um, And so, and that can be healing to people oftentimes. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Wonderful. Thanks for having us on. Yes, thank you. This episode was edited by Caroline Bone. Special thanks to our podcast intern, Amanda Gillette. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by DavisDeliciousDelights.com. DavisDeliciousDelights.com. Custom-made, personalized pastries, cakes, pies, and cookies made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davisdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $35.99 or more.